0: Welcome to Metal Minutes by Cornerstone Building Brands, a podcast series where we talk about hot topics in the metal construction industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Metal Minutes by Cornerstone Building Brands. My name is Lexi Edwards, and I'll be your host today. With me, I've got Arnold Corbin and Mark Kloss representing the Building Envelope Solutions segment of our business. Today, we'll be spotlighting insulated metal panels. And discussing how they can help meet energy building codes. How are you two today?
1: Never better. <laughs> it's fine.
0: All right. So, before we start out, can we get a little bit of background on your experience within the company and the industry?
2: Uh, I guess I'll lead off first. This is uh, Arnold Corbin. I'm the technical sales manager for MetalSpan and I also do support our Centria brands and will be transitioning more into a support role for all of commercial for Cornerstone. Uh, you know, my background, I've had uh, almost 20 years of experience with insulated panels business. Before that, I had 10 years of architectural metals, primarily with standing seam roof and the prior 10 to 15 years before that was pre engineered metal buildings and uh, general construction. Awesome.
1: Mark Kloss, my title is uh, Director of R&D for the Commercial Division, and like Arnold had a long uh, storied past in both insulated metal panels for both Centuria, Cornerstone, uh, companies before that, um, single-skin companies, roofing, uh, engineering, structural engineering, you name it. So we've, we've both been around the block a few times and uh, hopefully we're, we're qualified to talk about this.
0: <laughs> All right, great. So let's dive in to the background of energy building codes and discuss how insulated metal panels can help meet those energy building codes.
2: Uh, that That's a great question. I think the main thing is we need to start off with the fundamentals of what the building codes are, and there's a little bit of confusion with that, uh, and depending where you are is a lot of confusion. Uh, the, the one that people kind of most see is the IECC, which is International Energy Conservation Code, and ASHRAE uh, 90.7. Uh, ASHRAE is the American Society of Heating and Refrigeration uh, Engineers, and air conditioning engineers, excuse me. And that, is, that helps develop the what I call the guide that are used for a lot of codes. Some states and municipalities go ahead and adopt that as a code. But then the International Energy Conservation Code is really based upon ASHRAE, so it's it's a, the ASHRAE really is a guide code and then people will decide to elect if they want to use that code or the IECC or in some cases they may develop their own code separate from that, but in almost in all cases the ASHRAE is the fundamental uh, basis of all codes we're using in North America right now. Uh, the, the go a little more depth on the, on the codes on that, the codes actually are normally updated every three years. Uh, we use the terminology of code cycle, and so typically, that uh, the code cycles between ASHRAE and IECC actually are offset each other. And right now, the current or most current uh, ASHRAE code is from 2019, and the IECC is 2018. So, basically, you're going to see the new code coming out for uh, ASHRAE in 2022 and a new code for IECC in 2021.
0: So, as these are updated, does that mean that existing buildings that might have met the previous code could now be out of code?
2: Typically, they don't go retroactive uh, on the codes on that. And then some of the codes changes right now are very incremental and very small in some cases. Last codes have been focused on very heavily on the insulation value of the building, but the newer codes are more focused on air leakage and uh, thermal bridging of the building. So they, they really can't get that much more efficient for actually the thermal, uh, thermal performance of walls on that, but so they're starting to look at where you may get areas of leakage or thermal conduction through the buildings. For example, at corners, windows, doors, uh, intersections between roof and wall details or roof to foundation. So there's a big emphasis on that, and also the installation is becoming a major uh, focus on it. No matter how well your building is designed uh, and how how good the engineer or designers were on that, if it's not properly executed, it still leaks, and you will lose a significant amount of thermal uh, performance out of the building.
1: I agree with that. Since um, since '75, when the first ASHRAE came out, it was it, it focused on just improving some of the fundamentals of how much insulation is in the wall, as Arnold said, and such. As we evolved through in the last couple cycles that that ASHRAE 90 was out, it focused on execution and details because you could have small um, deficiencies in an insulation um, could really magnify what it actually, the net effect of that insulation is. So you could put R13 bad in your wall and if you left out a big space, say you're insulating your house, then that effect of putting in all that insulation was zero because of the way that the, the insulation works and the way you calculate it. So it, it's just like water going through a sieve. It, it seeks the largest hole. So now the the codes, whether it be the consensus codes of IECC or the, the standards of ASHRAE, Uh, as Arnold had had said, is focused on execution and details, and a lot of that is wanting. So the the codes necessarily need to function and focus on that. Um, It's it's a challenging time for a lot of the multi-component wall assemblies that they have multiple people trying to execute to a specification, and how well they execute now is gonna be judged uh, either during construction or after the fact. Uh, As that building
2: is put into into place. Probably a good question to ask is uh, how do you determine what how much insulation do you need in your building?
0: Okay, so so from what I understand, the building products have to meet a certain code, but then the installation of those products also have to be done in a certain way that also meet the codes?
2: Yes, Uh, and basically the way ASHRAE and IECC break down the North America, they break it down into eight zones. Those are primarily based on temperature, but then they have a uh, sub series on there that are based on about a moisture. So is it a marine environment? Is it a dry environment? Is it a moist environment or is it a warm, humid climate? Uh, so they break it down in different parts of the country on that. And that that's what is used as our guide for how much insulation we need for our building. And directly to your
1: question, um, the the code language used to be just qualitative as to how well you executed these numbers. So it said, Port R13, it says, provide an air barrier. All joints shall be sealed with caulking. Now there's testing that has quantitative numbers of how much air leakage you may have and be uh, and meet the requirements of the code. So that's what both Arnold and I are getting at. It really switched from qualitative to quantitative on a lot of these execution-type um, specific figures in that code mandated language sorry for the run on there
0: <laughs> okay that makes sense let's talk about uh, the actual paths uh, for compliance so there are prescriptive and performance building codes correct
2: yes and those are not really more those are really not tests on that those are actually how you uh, comply with the code on that and so the way the the code there's really two different tables people work from on that and again it's broken by the various uh zones and whether if it's a a marine environment in some cases on that Uh, the first first table they use on that and and this is out of the iecc is c402.1.3 and just uh, in the the title is ideal on that it's the opaque thermal envelope insulation component and i really want to focus on component requirements for our value and that's the one people are most familiar with on that. And the way it looks at it, it, it looks at the performance of individual components on that in a specific wall assembly. Uh, and this is the one thing is, that's been used for many years. In a lot of cases, it's sometimes misused uh, when it gets to insulated panels.
0: Okay. Is that the prescriptive way of doing it?
2: That is the prescriptive way. That's okay. correct. And kind of our, our market, our construction market uh, is, I guess, very mature on that, and people are used to seeing ours. A lot of people don't understand the U values, and again, the prescriptive code on this, we're looking at specific performance of the components on that, not the whole assembly. And and this is a this is a functional way of using some very the basic or probably some of the most common assemblies that have been used in the past for uh, for building construction on that but it doesn't necessarily recognize there's more of the uh, there's more types and different types of materials out there. Uh, pardon, God, I got to think this thing through how I want to present this uh, to a certain extent, the prescriptive codes or approaching the prescriptive code does limit the uh, options designers have for building a building uh, and again, not to limit the design flexibility or to limit new products that may be coming into the marketplace. Uh, they developed the, the next table, which is C402, Point point 0.1.4 opaque thermal assembly. And I want to focus on assembly on that. And so again, to start looking at the whole assembly on that, not just the individual elements. And that's where insulated panels typically live in for, for code compliance. And that's reported as a U-value. Uh, Mark, you want to comment between the difference between uh, U and R values?
1: Yes, I may. He, when we talk about the U-value, That's an engineering term that's actually used to calculate heat loss. Uh, The the problem with that is for the consumer and even for the design professional, the architect, is that it's a number less than one. So it's cumbersome for them to work with. And typical human nature, you like to see numbers, you wanna compare 10 to eight, you wanna compare 20 to 10. You don't wanna compare 0.01 to 0.03. So the R is really a a manifestation of just consumer usage or the regular working man usage of looking at a whole number instead of a fractional number. And it is, by definition, uh, the inverse of the U value. But as Arnold pointed out, from an engineering point of view or from a calculation point of view, when you look at the code and what requirements there are, that U value of the assembly is how IMP goes to market because we test the entire assembly and then we report that as a large-scale test as the functionality in thermal transmittance of that panel assembly, multiple panels joined together, tested for heat loss.
2: This is a prime example of bigger is better. Uh, you know where we're actually trying to reduce a heat flow through the wall on here but the marketing size we want to you know, the bigger the number the better we're going to be a uh, kind of mentality on that
0: okay so working on the prescriptive way of uh, of being in compliance uh we you want to look at both the u values and the r values or one over the other
2: normally you just pick one over the other uh and of course really your your most effective way of looking at the assembly on that is the u value Again, you're looking at at the whole assembly on that, not not individual components because what can happen sometimes with uh, prescriptive designs on there, if somebody changes the stud spacing or the girt spacing, whatever it is on there, those values can change significantly on that due to thermal bridging. And so some of the you know, items that are reported out there are based on very limited uh, uh, variability of, of the assembly. Mark, you okay. want to comment more on that?
1: Yeah, I think I think as well. A lot of it has to do with the the end user. So if you have a building code official on a residential project, it's mandated that the insulation that goes in in that same prescriptive section be marked. So that's why when you buy insulation in the store, very large, very conspicuously, you'll see R13 or you'll see R10 on that foam board, because he's coming around looking at those numbers. Seeing if those match what's required for, as, as Arnold pointed out, that climate zone, that installation. On the commercial side, it, moreover than not, you're entering it in a program called Comcheck, and you're entering it in the U values for each wall, each each wall you're putting in. Building a building, it totals them all up, and there's a compliance document that goes to the plans reviewer. So it really, it's it's driven up between, uh, uh, broken up on the on the U versus R, primarily along the lines of a residential-type installation versus a commercial-type installation. It's the way it should be broken up.
0: So it's very situational, then? hmm Okay, so, so the prescriptive codes, so the prescriptive way of being in compliance, um, you basically have to meet a certain level of compliance for each um, part of a building, right? So your walls, your windows, and your roof. Um, they all have to meet a certain compliance, correct?
2: That's correct. And it's one thing that is really probably not the best way of looking at at the assembly of a building because it looks at individual elements. It's not looking at the whole building in in total. And so the the thought is, if you have an area that's underperforming, you overcompensate another area of the building on that to take care of that, that weakness in the thermal envelope. And so what we believe we're going to see in the future, we're going to be looking at whole building modeling. So we're not going to look at uh, overcompensating we're going to look at improving underperforming details details uh, to get an overall better performance of the building
0: okay so then that would be the way of, of being in compliance via like a performance code
2: then that that would be toward the, the performance code mark i may let you talk a little more about that because it's the 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 basically the envelope trade-off method is what i was pretending what i was talking about and so they look at individual components and overcompensate on that, where performance on that starts to look at the whole assembly. But even at that point, we're not looking at the whole building.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. Uh, it it still hasn't become um, so complex that, as, as Arnold mentioned, that you look at the interface between a window and, and the opaque wall. The prescriptive requirements say you must put this you must have this requirement for the opaque portion of the wall, this much for the glazed portion, and the intersection between those two are really outside the scope of the code. It's the way it's it's been done now for 20, 30 years. As we move forward into the performance side, the, the you have two different levels. You have the trade-off with the, just the envelope, whereas as Arnold mentioned, you could have better windows. Uh, to reduce uh, the opaque value, it's usually not the case. You add insulation to the roof, you could put less in the wall, maybe because you have a better opportunity to do that. It's the net effect of energy loss you're looking at. But the true performance code is one that's completely modeled, that it's not just talking about what cornerstone supplies through century and metal span, which is building envelope products. It also is the mechanical system, the hot water heating, your plugs and lights, uh, everything that, that uses energy in that building on the performance side is really modeled and traded against some mandatory minimums. So in, if you look at it in the broadest sense, I could in, have uh, all type of occupancy sensors and other things to try to turn off my computers, turn down my lighting, set back my heating, and all that can be traded as well against other, less efficient objects in there. So we talk about very large publicly owned structures. We do, you know, stadiums, hospitals, uh, airports. You know, any of the like where there's a partial public funding. A lot of those are modeled at the extreme end of the performance side, looking at every aspect and how much that. A lot of times, products that we supply in the envelope are great trade-offs. The IMP product can provide more than efficient, more than the basic requirements for efficiency of the envelope, and allows them then to look at more glass area or less efficient things inside that building because we're a great item to trade off with.
2: To came to build a little more on that thought, also, we we're a fairly easily uh, uh, installed product on that, so it's easy for us to maintain the thermal bom- envelope and continuity in the, the air and bear preparers around the building. So that's one thing we really bring uh, to the table on there. We have high levels of performance, but but relatively simple to install. Uh, so it's easy to avoid making mistakes in installation.
0: That was a really good way of explaining it. <laughs> um, so I think you had mentioned at one point that um, the, the performance pathway is kind of the way that we're moving towards just because that it's looked at from a a, a complete building standpoint or is the prescriptive way still being used
2: oh absolutely it is again it's, we have a very mature uh, construction market we keep doing things we because we've always done it that way in some cases we perceive them to 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 perform well uh when in actuality when you look at the actual performance they really really not so it's an education process with designers and code officials. Uh, I was at a, an industry meeting not too long ago, and one of the people that were in a meeting and said good, it's a good thing that code officials don't know the code. And so we've seen uh, kind of a slow adopting or understanding of the changes that are going on in the codes and the limitations of our current products. Uh, but right now there's a lot of people still out there using prescriptive codes uh, for design of their buildings.
0: Okay. So, is there a, a reason that, I mean, I know that you said that um, just doing it the way that it's always been done, but is uh, is there a, a time that you would prefer to use one way over another, or is it just preference?
2: Well, if you're using a traditional construction method, you know, your your, your steel studs or wood studs uh, with infill insulation on that, you could very well use that, and it's a, still a very common and valid uh, assembly method on uh, for buildings out there. But again, there's a lot of different trades involved within lots of components that have to come together that are installed by at least two or three trades. So yes, I can still be used on that if that's your preferred method of construction. Yes, you can do on that. Uh, but then again, you still get into verification that it was properly installed uh, with commissioning of the building or or uh, air barrier testing of the building.
0: Okay. So the the performance pathway um, it, it allows building designer to optimize various parts of the building um, can this save time or money or any type of operating expenses
2: and, and the answer is yes to all three uh, a lot of people focus on the cost of construction and really the majority of the cost of ownership is the, the maintenance and operation of the building after construction so a lot of people focus too much of their time on the to get it built version or let me, let me restate that uh, too many, too many owners focus on the construction cost and not necessarily the operational cost of the building, and in almost all cases, operational costs will always outweigh the cost of building the building over the long, all over the long-term ownership. Mark, you want to restate that? I don't know if I stated that that well.
1: No, I I, th- I think that you're getting to the right point there. That sometimes it's it's a matter of just complexity. So let's say that. You wanted to have a lot of glass area. You wanted to have a large glass facade. And you look at the prescriptive method, and that would be such a penalty. But then you look at the fact that you could gain energy uh, through those windows. You can shade it so you don't overtax your cooling system. And if you start bringing in those other factors that are more complex, that in the end could all be a net advantage, the orientation of the building, the proportions of the building, all these things that when you look at a performance standpoint, you can look at the energy savings that you don't have to have the the, the lights on as much on instead of just the heat loss through that glass. So in those type of larger energy trade-offs, the only way to justify that, which usually ends up a net positive, is to use the performance method.
2: Yeah, and there's really kind of two costs of ownership that that people are working on. Uh, First is construction, which is the predominant thing people focus on. And then there's a cost of ownership. In almost all cases, the cost of ownership will far outweigh the cost of of the actual construction of the building. So, spending a little more time, a little more money and detail on building a a thermally efficient building uh, will always pay for itself in the long term.
0: That's great stuff. So is there anything else that we haven't covered yet, really, about um, how to meet building codes using insulated metal panels? I,
1: I think I think the only thing, if you want to touch on, Arnold, is, is the single component versus multi-component. As you, you touched on earlier, but as verifications are more needed and it gets more complex with, with air leakage and such, that this one-stop shop um, entity, the single component entity, with the confidence that usually you can install it right (laughs) but maybe we want to do a little bit of uh salesmanship on on the okay yeah the the imp provides
2: okay one of the beauties of an insulated panel system on that it's a one-step process so provide your thermal moisture and vapor barriers all in one component including your exterior finishes on that the finishes in some cases are warranted up to 40 years Uh, And to add even more to the value on that, we also have integrated details such as windows, corners, uh, and intersections into uh, other foam panels, uh, components such as roofing. And so it's a simple one-step method on that to achieve uh, a very high-performing thermal envelope.
0: Okay. Well, any last points that you would like our listeners to know?
2: Yeah, the only thing I may, may add on here, is, and I think it's important to understand, that that energy codes vary widely across the country and in Canada also. Uh, and so there are some states that have no state codes at all. They leave it up to what they call home rules, so it's up to the local jurisdictions to develop codes. There may be state codes that are out there, but, you can, but that's the minimum code on there. So if there's certain cities on there that want to go to a higher standard, they can do that or adopt a more current code, they're allowed to do that. And so it's really, really important to understand where your building is being built at, to understand what code you need to comply to. Can you literally go, go right across the, the border into another town and have a totally different code? So it's really important to understand that, that concept. Know where you're at. Exactly.
0: Great. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. This has been a lot of great information.
2: Thank you and thank you enjoy the uh, enjoy the conversation.
0: Hey, fellow metalheads, thanks for listening to our episode. For more information, visit the blog section on our website or visit our podcast page for similar topics. Want to become a metal insider? Sign up for our newsletter for exclusive industry news and updates.